Welcome to Healthcare Happenings, a One Digital Employer Advisory Podcast. It's no secret that healthcare is complicated and to prepare for the road ahead, business leaders need transparency and access to information in order to develop the best health benefit strategy. Our team of compliance leaders are here to shed light on the latest developments on the Hill and share their collective vision for ways to improve the healthcare experience. Welcome to our session today. So we're going to focus on the on surprise billing or the No Surprises Act. You know, individuals have long been plagued by unexpected medical bills. Many times, though, you know, they're related to things that they have little or no control over. This is really what the surprise billing is. Um, and it, and it results in tens of thousands of dollars of out-of-pocket for individuals and, and really nowhere to go. So... Recent legislation has passed, um, giving some relief in this area. And so we have a special guest, Sam Tulsa, a special guest on our show this this week to tell us, dig in and tell us a little bit more about what relief there is now. Yeah, so I would love to introduce everyone to one of our newest additions to the corporate compliance consulting team, uh, Jesse Hansen. He is a senior employee benefits attorney. Um, and he has delved a bit more into this. I think it's 114 pages interim final rule regulations, and he's going to provide a high-level synopsis for our listeners. Thank you. So uh, I guess first things first, the thing to note is this is just one of many regulations that are going to come out um, in relation to this bill. There are five main points that came out in this interim final rule. The first is that it banned surprise billing for emergency services. So the emergency services, regardless of where they're provided, have to be treated on an in-network basis without any requirements for prior authorization. Next is that it bans high out-of-network cost sharing for emergency and non-emergency services. So the patient cost sharing like coinsurance or a deductible can't be higher than if the services were provided by an in-network doctor. And then any coinsurance or deductibles that people have to pay have to be based on the in-network provider rates. Next would be that it bans the out-of-network charges for ancillary care, like an anesthesiologist or an assistant surgeon, if you're at an in-network facility in all circumstances. And it also bans other out-of-network charges without advance notice. So healthcare providers, facilities, they have to provide patients with a plain language consumer notice. And uh, the DOL provided a model notice for that, that requires patient consent if they're going to receive care on an out-of-network basis before, before the provider can bill at the higher out-of-network rate. And then finally, um, it also bans surprise billing for air ambulance services if they're provided by any out-of-network providers. Jesse, um, thanks, Jesse. That's a, it's a really good synopsis. Let's let's walk through like what is this experience? Because um, thinking about it before, the experience for the patient is that you know obviously emergency is emergency, right? They take me to the closest place, and I don't have a choice, and they treat me, stabilize me, whatever. But if it's out of network, in the past before this piece, if it was out of network, I could be billed at a much higher rate, and you know, 
even though I had no control over picking that hospital, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can even just share personally, this happened to me where I went to the hospital's kind of instant care network that was in the um, network that I was in at the time. They looked me over and decided that I actually should be sent to the emergency room, which was literally across the hall in the same hospital. The ER was not included in our network. And Ah. we never assumed that that would be the case. So, I mean, why would you when you're in the same building? We were referred to them by the in-network provider who knew what insurance we had. And when the bill came through, it went through just like a regular insurance claim would for the Instacare. And when we Mm -hmm. got the, I mean, surprise certainly covers what happens when we got the ER bill and all of the costs that we had to cover for the medicine, for the CAT scans, for everything else, not one part of it was covered by our insurance because the ER in that hospital was out of network, but the Instacare was in network. And so this would, without my consent, have prevented all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now the consent part that you're talking about, that's Okay, I am planning. My doctor says you have to have a surgery. You're going to have to go in, right? And um, in that sur, you know, you sit down and um, you pick your surgeon and you pick your hospital or the facility. Both are in network. You go on the day. 90 other people parade in and out of your room um, and getting you prepared and ready and, and through that surgery and then. You come home and you get bills from people. You're like, who are these people? Right. So radiologist, you know, pathologist and the anesthesiologist who actually comes up to you and says, hello, I'm your anesthesia. And you're like, great. But they're not in the network. Right. So you get all these out of network costs. So that's what this other is. This where this other consent piece is. Right. Right. Um, And I think that's. The they provided the model notice, and as I understand the model notice, that just explains that patient consent will be required. But there hasn't really been a whole lot of guidance yet on to, you know, when you go into the hospital now, you're given a lot of different notices. You're given your HIPAA notice. You're given some kind of yes. billing notice. I think one of the problems that could come up is when you're asked to sign all of these different things and most people, they don't read through it. They, they just know that before I'm seen, I have to sign this. Is this consent notice going to be slipped in with the rest of the notices? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that going to be allowed? Is there going to have to be some kind of extra step taken to say, I actually realize what I'm consenting to. And it's not just, part of my intake forms where I signed that you can bill me at these rates without um, recognizing that I've actually given you consent to do this. Um, And this is a good start, but from a patient perspective, I think there's still going to be some steps that they're going to have to work through to show that consent was given with, you know, actual knowledge that you're saying, sure, I'd be happy to pay you more money. Uh, which I don't think many of us would be willing to do if we didn't have to. Jesse, um, real, real quick, if you, there, there was a case out of Virginia um, 
that was dealing with refer- with, a, with an individual who was enrolled in a reference-based pricing plan. Um, and generally, when you're enrolled in a reference-based pricing plan, you go, you receive treatment, there's a form of negotiation that happens on the back end, and usually a, a deal is struck. And the individual had had a heart attack, right? Which I think we would all agree is an example of an emergency, an emergent situation, right? Sure. We're, we're going to be going to the ER. So the individual goes to the ER and signs a, a, a consent form that they agree to pay for all charges that are billed. Now, the individual is suffering from a heart attack, is, is stressed out and in really bad shape. Right. Um, so the reference-based pricing model kicks in and there's a negotiation that happens. The hospital wants one price, the plan wants to pay another price, and they have this fight about what's reasonable and customary. And the court in this case said, it's not about whether it's reasonable or customary, it's about whether this was a valid contract or whether it was signed under duress, right? Sure. So, so if somebody's fearing for their life, they had a heart attack and they get a consent form put, it, put in front of them and they sign it, to what extent is it a valid contract? I mean, when I listen to what you just described, where there's, you know, you're seeking emergency care at a facility that could be out of network and there's a consent form that you sign I mean, do you envision a scenario where people are going to be fighting about, is this a valid contract? I mean, is this actually consent? Did somebody actually agree to pay for these costs if they were fearing for their life or if they were uh, in, an emo- in an incredibly distressed state because they're in an, amount of, an incredible amount of pain or what have you? Sure. Uh, I mean, do I picture people fighting over it? Sure. We we fight over lots of things now, right? So um, whether that consent was actually given, I, I'm, I mean, I don't think that there would be. And I, I think that, you know, especially if, you know, it's my heart attack and I have to sign these things before they see me, um, probably certainly not. Could there be a distinction of if it is my spouse or my child? And so the emergency isn't directly happening to me, but it's certainly affected my judgment and my emotions and, you know, and wanting to get things moving. Um, But if I'm the one that's required to sign, you know, is there something there? I, I would hope not, but absent any bright lines you know, rules that come out, I, yes, I do think that fight will occur and it'll take some time to figure out what the actual rules are, probably through court cases, just like the one you brought up. Yeah, Just go back to situation where, in other words, you're under a high stress situation. The hospital really doesn't have the right not to treat you anyway. So whether you sign that or not, Mm-hmm. is another piece of that story, I think, that that if sure. you don't, you still got to get treated. Yeah, but I just wonder what the average person would think. If I've got a sheet of papers, I'd be like, oh, I'm frantic, freaking out. Just sign it, get this over with and come see me. Like if I was to think most of the documents, even being an attorney, I'm like, do I even have bargaining power to negotiate or redline any of those terms? It's usually like, this is a standard form. I just sign it and that's it. I'm like Scott, though. I think it's a predatory practice mm-hmm. on, the, on the part of the hospitals. And, and to put some economic context around this, we're talking about the difference between charges and reimbursement 
average probably between 50 and 60% discount. So they're exposing, intentionally exposing the patient to as much as double and triple what they would have paid had they gone to a participating provider. Not to mention that a lot of this doesn't go to the out-of-pocket max either. Sure. Well, let's think about too. What look at the model? Like, so what is the likelihood that this is going to happen to somebody? It, that these doctors are not going to be in the network. What's it, the likelihood now? It became sort of a, a industry business model that that uh, Scott mentioned before, where where certain. <clears throat> Uh, specialties that were these contractors to hospitals that provided anesthesia is a a good example where the patient more or less and the family is isolated from they don't have a relationship with anesthesiologists the radiologists and so forth so we did see some business models that were aggregating these kind of groups around the country and essentially creating a monopoly in certain areas and then refusing to participate with the healthcare plan, thus leaving the patient at risk. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I was talking to this one company that their job is to source physicians in these positions. So, you know, just thinking about it from a business standpoint, oh, so I have, you know, I'm down like three anesthesiologists because somebody's out or they're ill or they're the, they're rotating people. They're probably not part of the network. They're just trying, they're trying to fill the services too. Then there are other hospital systems that all of those positions are contract. They don't like they're contracted with outside. They're not employees of the hospital. Right. So all of these different employment models come into play as well. It's particularly uh, problematic in the rural areas. Yeah. 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 For sure. So, I mean, when I, when I think about, Annette, the work that we've done down in D.C. from a lobbying perspective and how long we've been having this conversation, uh, you know, this didn't come out of nowhere. This this, yeah, this, passed, exactly. this was passed in a big bill relatively quickly, but the conversation has been going on for a long period of time. I mean, when you think about something like an air ambulance ride and you, you let's say you're out on your mountain bike in the beautiful countryside of Utah, Jesse, and you, you, you have a crash way out in the middle of nowhere and, you, and you're really hurt and an air ambulance, come, a helicopter comes and picks you up and takes you to a hospital. And uh, the last thing on your mind is this is, is this going to be covered by my insurance policy? And next thing you know, you get sent a bill for $30,000, dollars $50,000 for that ambulance ride um, and find out there's no coverage. That is a life-changing amount of debt, of medical debt. Um, and so this has been on the radar for a long time. But Annette, you know, what, why, why do you think it took a, a, a long amount of time to get this to move when everybody agreed that this doesn't seem right, right? This doesn't seem fair in any sense of a, uh, of a consumer uh, uh, in a consumer free economic situation where, where we're not shopping for this. We're, we don't have time to evaluate this, but yet we get sent a bill that's a, a, a life-changing, crippling amount of money. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so the, the issue really was, you're right. Everyone agrees. And Aaron Deals is just an example. That's just yeah. a poor instance. No, that was a great the, example, yeah. though, too. So the, the issue, and you're right. Everyone agrees the patient is not who should be responsible. So that, now it comes down to the responsible parties. So you have the provider who provided the service, right? And then you have the insurer who is reimbursing the service. And this is where the rub comes in. And this is what's taken so long. They cannot agree on how do you resolve resolve the cost difference of what the employer should be reimbursed compared to what the health plan should pay. That's the issue, right? So this is what you, and you know, it. we've been talking forever. They can't agree on what is the right methodology. Now we've seen a bunch of states that said, we're not waiting for the federal government to figure it out. We're going to do something in our state. And there are different payment models in there and what happens. And so this is where we've been really um, interested in these out Outcomes because how the payment amount resolves between that provider and the insurance company determines what happens to the different costs and does that add overall to the intrinsic costs of the healthcare system over time anyway, right? So that's kind of been the issue. And so um, they sort of blended it here. So I, I don't know if we want to give a little bit more on the different methodologies of how that, you know, what happens then. So the patient doesn't know it. Who owes it? Where is the, what happens to that cost difference in this, in this new bill piece? Yeah. So in the, in the new world, you get sent a $50,000 bill for an air ambulance ride that's out of network. Uh, that was for emergency care. How do we arrive at a price? How do we arrive at what individuals are going to pay? Yeah. Um, so and and, yeah, and the, the, the models yeah. that the models that we were pushing for from a lobbying perspective were using some form of regional benchmarking, where you would look at the average regional in-network price as a benchmark to use. But it received a ton of pushback from stakeholders. Um, it would require. Uh, at least in their perspective, disclosure of trade secrets, disclosure of information that is uh, relatively protected. How do we figure out what that average is? So they came up with uh, the the alternative to that benchmark was a form of arbitration. And Jesse, I don't know if you um, are able to get into a little bit of the arbitration or Annette are able to get in a little bit of the arbitration that they're talking about. But our concern from a lobbying perspective is that arbitration tends to be expensive. Um, and, and does it add cost? And when you're trying to save money for the plan and try to save money and come up with a fair number. So the day a form of arbitration that, that, that carried the day um, in, in, in this law. Yeah. So Justin, yeah. how does that work in this one? Yeah. I mean, so when it, I mean, it has to go through a few steps before it gets, they call it the independent dispute resolution, but it's Scott said it's, it's essentially arbitration. Um, yeah. And they'll start with the, what's called an all payer model agreement uh, that's included mm-hmm. in the social security act that covers certain things, or depending on what state you're in, if you're in Maryland, if you're in Pennsylvania, they've already come up with their own. Um, right. If those charges are included in that all payer model agreement, it's just, there are no negotiations. That's just what the cost is going to be. Uh, yeah. So everybody the, sort of lives with, this is a benchmark, right? This is right. the cost for this procedure. And mm-hmm. all parties agree that that's what it is. This is what the provider gets reimbursed end of the day. Right. Done. Right. Okay. You know, if that's, that's not there, 
then yeah, then the provider and the you know the hospital, the facility, they'll get together and just try to negotiate what both sides feel is a fair price among themselves. Then if that fails, they go to arbitration. And um, this interim final rule brings up the arbitration option, but also says, look, we're going to be telling you more about that later. Just know that this is the final step in the proceeding that, you know, and hopefully, you know, as Scott said, they'll find a way to keep costs down for everybody. Um, yes. You know, but yeah. It, isn't it hard, though, in those negotiations, if you're the provider and you've established a fairly tight range of acceptable reimbursements from companies, isn't it hard to argue that the variance from those norms should be significant? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I wonder, too, de- depending on how these arbitration rules come out when they do, um, I might be inclined if I'm the provider or, you know, the, the plan, I mean, to maybe sit back and see how a few of those arbitrations go first. Are they a lot more favorable to me and what I pay out? Because if they are, then my negotiation tactics probably got uh, a lot more extreme in what I'm willing to pay. If the arbitration turns out that, oh, my goodness, I'm going to pay a lot more, well, then uh, maybe I'm going to factor that in and try not to ever get to arbitration. So I think there'll be quite a bit of trial and error going through it at first, just as each, I guess, really each side sees how the rules are written and how these arbitrators, if they tend to kind of fall on the side of the plan or the provider more often. And you know, Who's, paying for arbitrator? Who's paying for those services? I don't think we know yet. I mean, that's the, you know, and so, <laughs> so there's another most likely it'll get passed cost, along right? to me, you, and everybody yeah. else on insurance. Right. So there's another new cost that this brings up. So I guess the frequency is going to tell us, you know, how much does that add to the system? You know, so while I don't have to pay out of pocket, do my premiums go up as a result of this new intricate creation of an all cl- all payer system and maintaining that system and these arbiters that are going to have to be hired by who knows who. And, you know, so those are some of the things that you start to think about. Okay. And and then our efforts to do something really good, are we actually adding more costs? Is it helping? At At least at the onset, patients aren't going to get these surprise bills. So I think that's good. So what's next with this? Um, this was an interim final rule, Jesse. So where do we go from here? What's next? Um, so now we, I mean, we're kind of in a, in a waiting game. It's interim. So we'll wait for it to go final. Uh, typically there's not a whole lot of changes between the interim rule and the actual final rule. Um, and there doesn't seem, I haven't seen really any massive outcry against these rules as, as they've been put out. So, um, and then we just, we wait for additional rules, uh, specifically the arbitration that we've discussed to see what those look like. Yeah, I know that Scott in the groups that we participate with, there's been some prospective comments being made uh, to kind of answer like, and bring up some of these things like, what about 
what are the qualifications of these arbiters? Are they going to be, you know, and, and just prompting the departments with things that they should think about. Do they have a background? Do they understand how the system works today? Do they understand what CPT codes even are? You know, do they, you know what I mean? Those kinds of things, um, questioning. Um, so I guess we wait for final rules to see if that, what changes. But I do think that the other big one that you brought up that I think will be interesting to watch and important to watch is exactly what are the what and how and how much in advance are those disclosures and consents to be done? Yeah. So if it's not an emergency situation, is there going to be a number of days that it has to be done prior to the actual event? I mean, some of those types of things. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yep. Any parting thoughts on this? The only other thing I wanted to mention was that this is applicable to group health plans and insurers for plans or policy years that begin on or after January 1st of 2022. So it's just around the corner. Yeah, great, great point, Sam. Yeah, I was just I was just going to piggyback on what Sam was saying. Is practically speaking, for an employer, you know, this is something that we're going to be paying very close attention to because I'm sure that there, you'll see third party administrators in the self funded market and insurance carriers compete for efficiencies on these types of um, issues that arise and in, in, in trying to resolve these matters as efficiently as humanly possible. So it's going to be another another area where we see vendor partners of ours attempt to compete for your business. And we hope that, you know, they'll get creative and figuring out ways to deliver efficiency so that this doesn't end up being a situation where you're essentially just uh, prepaying the out of network charge that you're going to get billed through increased administrative fees. Right. So. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks to our normal um, crew here, our regulars, Ron Bagazzi, Sam Malver, Scott Wham, I'm Annette Bechtold, and special thanks to Jesse Hansen for being with us and explaining the, what the rule is. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you soon. And thank you all for tuning in. Staying on top of compliance today can be the source of great concern and frustration. Our dedicated team of attorneys and experts look around the corner on your behalf and deliver the tools, education, and resources needed to help you plan for the future and protect your employees and business every day. You can access additional resources, employer advisory sessions, and podcasts on our website, onedigital.com. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.